Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to our Thursday 11th hour. Um, quick reminder to switch off your cell phones if you could, please. Thank you. At today's 11th hour presentation, BK Lauren is here to remind us of the essential but often overlooked motives of our very own writing. If the end goal is to transcend via language, or to commune with the reader, or to make music, or mystery, or metaphor, or meaning, then why do we spend so much time torturing ourselves with the sticky details of product, or commodity, or thingness, or even just completion? B.K. Lauren's fiction and creative nonfiction has appeared in the Best American Spiritual Writing, the Berkeley Fiction Review, the, Fe the Future of Nature, Orion, and many others. She's received awards and fellowships from Mary Roberts Reinhardt, New Millennium, and the UCross Foundation. Her novel, Theft, is forthcoming um, from Counterpoint in 2012. So let's welcome B.K. Lauren. Thank you, everyone. Uh, we're trying the mic. Is the mic working? Yes. So you can hear me and I can talk normally. Great, okay. Uh, so today I'm gonna be talking about writing as practice. And the, the thing that made me wanna speak about this is that I think that writing is different than most arts in that uh, we come to it very often already thinking of the end. And we forget to be in the process. Um, often when, uh, when I tell someone I write, and I'm sure that you guys have had the same experience, uh, when you say you write, what do people say back to you? What, what do you write? What else? And I heard something else over here with it. What do you publish? What have you published? Um, and if you tell someone that you uh, are learning the guitar, have, has anyone ever said to you, oh, are you going to play for the symphony? <laughs> Doesn't happen, right? Oh, I, I'm taking dancing lessons. Oh, really? When are you going to be, uh, you know, a fly girl? Um, it, there's something about writing that makes us jump to the end. And I'm going to talk about today what happens in our minds, actually uh, neurologically, when you jump to the end of the, of the process um, before you even have gone through the process. So we're going to look a little bit at that. And um, we're also, these are the goals here today. We're going to put both the process of writing and the desire to publish in clearer perspective, I hope. Um, we're going to talk about making your writing matter in and of itself with or without publication. And uh, also, guess what? You're going to write here today in, in, the, in the elevenses, or excuse me, the eleventh hour. Now, I'm going to play a video next, and some of you are going to think it's funny, and some of you are going to think it's just snarky and mean, but I'm going to play it anyway because it sort of talks about what... Uh, what I'm talking about here. So we're going to listen to some bears for a little bit. I'm going to write a novel. For the love of all that is holy. Why? Because I'm going to be a writer. I've never seen you show even the slightest interest in books. 
it's going to be a bestseller. Now that I think about it, I've never even seen you read a book. That's because all fiction novels suck. What was the last book you read? I saw all of the Harry Potter movies. That's not what I meant. So what's your book about? It's science fiction crossed with chitlin crossed with literary fiction. Do you even know what any of those things mean? I quit my job this morning. Oh no. Please tell me you didn't. I just bought a new laptop. A MacBook Air. Have you ever attempted to write a novel-length manuscript? I've already written the first page. It's really awesome. I plan to finish by the end of the week. Do you think I can get it published in time for the Christmas shopping season? I'm going to need the money soon. It's December 4th. How do you not? I suppose that's okay. I'll just max out my credit cards. You do realize it takes years of honing your crap before you'll be ready to produce a publishable book. And that's assuming you've spent the last 20 years reading hundreds of novels. I've been living my life. Not wasting my time reading. What do you think I am? Some kind of dork. Wow. So how do you plan to get your book published? I'm going to take a copy to Random House. I think my heart just stopped. They've never seen anything like this. I know they'll want to talk to me right away. That's not really how it works. To get a deal with one of the major publishers, you really need a literary agent. Well, that will be easy enough. I'll just call a few and let them fight over me. I wish I could kill you and get away with it. The average literary agent gets about 10,000 queries a year. In a good year, they might take on two new clients. In fact, I think I will call them today. Yes. They don't take queries by phone. And your book is not even finished. But my idea is a guaranteed bestseller. I better warn them not to steal my idea because it's copyrighted. Most agents are just losers who couldn't get good deals. If you take the astonishingly stupid step of calling an agent, I wouldn't agree with that. You're right. I'm really busy today anyway. I'll just send a mass email to a bunch of agents. Get ready to be disappointed. I'm thinking I'll only hire an agent who can promise me a six-figure deal. You may actually inspire all the agents in New York to come hunt you down with pitchforks and burn you at the stake. Why do you think they will start my book tour? I'm not sure I'm making myself clear. Let me try another approach. I assume you've used a steak knife, right? Of course. Do you think you're qualified to perform neurosurgery? Uh-huh. That's funny. I might base a character on you. So do you think that being able to read and write your native language makes you qualified to write a novel? How many editors will Random House assign to my novel? Mine is 13. Because it's going to need a lot of editing. I'm not the best speller. My throat is starting to close up. The publishing industry really sort of expects you to have a whole spelling and grammar thing down. But I'm a talent. That's what editors are for. That's why you should expect to spend a few months on revisions before you ever let it see the light of day. It might be wise to crack open a book about the craft of writing. Stephen King wrote a good one called On Writing. That sounds so boring and totally unnecessary. Fine. Are you ready to spend hundreds of hours banging away at your laptop? Do you think they will let me direct the movie version of my book? I'm going to gigantic clock holes that are impossible to fill. I'm a storyteller. It will all work out. Are you ready to discover your characters are as one-dimensional as the ones in a pornographic movie? I'm a student of the human condition. My characters will have depth and substance. Are you aware that publishers are putting out fewer novels than ever? 
Great. Less competition for me. Are you ready to find yourself on page 50 and then think of an even better idea for a novel? Hey, that's a good idea. I'm going to write several books at a time. I can maximize my earnings that way. Do you want to be a ghostwriter for me? I will cut you in for 10%. I have a gun in my car. I'm going to go get it now. Top the bears, can I? Um, so actually, you know, we're laughing, but but uh, most of the things that the the little bear says are true. Um, you know, that an agent gets about ten thousand queries and takes on about two uh, every year, and uh, you know, the, the the one bear who has a good head on her shoulder, she had some good advice. Now, anyone who's taught, um, and probably those of you who are students uh, yourself. Uh, you know people who the very first thing they want to talk about is how to copyright their work. Well, have you written a page yet? No. Um, and um, you know how to protect the work. We're very concerned about protecting the work. And um, what is it that makes us jump ahead to the end in this particular art? And what does that do to the art form itself? We're going to talk about that a little bit more seriously now. And um, if I can get this to go on to the next. There we go. Uh, this is a great book. Has anyone read it? Uh, the Midnight Disease. Uh, fantastic book written. Uh, the subtext or the subtitle is uh, The Drive to Write, Writer's Block, and the Creative Brain. And this, uh, this woman who wrote it is a neurologist herself. So she studies the brain. Now, she does not study psychology. So it's, it's, she studies the brain. And she herself became uh, hypo, hypergraphic at one point in her life. Hypergraphic is where you cannot stop writing. She was so hypergraphic that she had to be institutionalized. She wrote on her skin. She wrote on the walls in the doctor's office. She could not stop writing. She had to be institutionalized because she couldn't stop writing. By the way, she's a fantastic writer and a poet as well as a, a prose writer. Um, so when she got over this condition, uh, as a neurologist, she decided to study the brain and what, what makes the brain want to write. And what makes the brain also, the flip side of it, what makes the brain have writer's block? And uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic study. I really recommend reading it. I'm going to talk about uh, a little bit what she says in there. Hypergraphia is the clinical term for, mental, for a mental illness whose main symptom is the inability to stop writing. So there's something in our brains that makes us write or not write. It's not just psychological. It is actually physical. Hypographia is the clinical term for writer's block. There's something in our brains that can actually turn on and off to make us write and not write. And Flaherty's uh, book uses as its foundation the neurological comparison of these two states. Speaking is an instinct. All humans do it. Writing is learned. Many, or even most people, humans, 
can't write and haven't written throughout history. We sometimes make the mistake that because we think of, we, we use language every single day, unlike other arts, um, we don't walk up to somebody in, a, a, in the mall and hand them a sculpture. We don't walk up to somebody in the mall and play a tune for them. And only in opera do people start singing to one another. And opera's not our favorite art, usually. I, I enjoy it uh, very much, but a lot of people are sort of turned off by people who sing everything that they say. <laughs> However, we as artists, as writers, who are trying to make words into art, I'm using them right now. And they're not art. And throughout the day, you're probably going to write a memo to somebody. That's not art. But it's the same action. It's the same action. So something about the fact that we use it every single day lets us think that already we can jump to the end of it. Already we're, we're, we're masters of it. Already, in order to validate ourselves as writers, we have to be validated by others. Because our art form uses the most mundane medium ever, words. How do we turn those into art? Um, the skill of writing is primarily the domain of the cerebral cortex. Uh, the drive to write is seated in the limbic system. That's the fight or flight part of the brain. So the skill of writing is, is different. It, it's seated in a different area in your brain than the drive to write. So some people have a tremendous skill for writing and absolutely no drive. It's, it's how you can get these two together. You know. um, the limbic system is also the, uh, the, the seat of emotions. That's where, that's, that's where it's seated in our brain, this drive to write. Uh, I didn't put this up there. Uh, Steven Pinker uh, has talked, he talks about, he's a linguist, a fantastic linguist, who talks about the fact that writing, or excuse me, uh, speaking is an instinct. It's not learned. If you were uh, in a, a forest alone and you had no one to speak to, you would develop language. It's, a, it's, it's an instinct for all humans to speak. It is not an instinct for us to write, though. So it's all sorts of things that twist around in our brain about writing, words, speaking, and turning this thing into art. Now here's a real catch-22 for us as writers. <coughs> Teresa Amabile, I don't know how to say her last name, professor of business administration at the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial uh, management unit, unit of Harvard found that uh, creative work driven by intrinsic motives illustrates a higher level of creativity than work triggered extrinsically. So that means that if you come to writing, well, I'll, I'll finish my other bullet point. When two people are given a project, one paid to do it and the other one not, the former's creativity is inhibited by the mere possibility of reward. We were, I, I, I think it was in uh, uh, Doug's 11s, as somebody raised their hand and said, you know, I tend to like uh, early works by writers. And then as they get more successful, I tend not to like them as much. Well, this explains that. 
when you have the reward of, of pay and waiting for you, then it can actually undo the creative process in your brain, not psychologically. So knowing that, I, I, knowing that you can begin to get beyond it. But you, as a writer, this is what we're going to talk about, what I'm going to talk about today and try to get you to sort of think about. Um, as a writer, you're constantly in this catch-22. How, how do I keep this intrinsic uh, uh, um, urge going? But yet, of course, we all want to be heard and published. But how do you, you, you can't sit down with that in, your, in, in the forefront of your brain. But for some reason, we tend to. If we don't stay in process, then we're undercutting the creativity of what comes out on the page. Uh, so the, the study reflects neurological studies. I used the study twice, isn't that interesting? That um, show less activity in the areas of the brain responsible for such higher level literary phenomena as metonymy and metaphor when and if the possibility of extrinsic rewards, publishing, and pay are present. The neurobiology of mood and a limited drive to write seem to be much more important to creative writing than cognitive and technical <coughs> writing skills. And the early potential and talent, early potential and talent decrease measurably with the promise and or focus of extrinsic reward. And how do they, how do they know this? They actually study parts of the brain. Well, I, th I thought I had a slide about that. They actually study the parts of the brain that light up when you're writing. And, um, and uh, when you have an extrinsic re reward waiting for you, the parts of the brain that are responsible for, uh, for emotion, for the drive of writing, if you have an extrinsic reward uh, waiting for you, are, are not as lit up as they are if, if you don't have that reward waiting, if you don't think that that reward is waiting for you. Kind of a mind screw, isn't it? Really kind of a mind screw. I'm using the polite word there. Um, so here's another aspect of, of this. Uh, graphomania, which is, in, uh, I, I don't know if Milan Kundera uh, coined this or not, but I know he, he, he uses it. Graphomania is not the drive to write, but the drive to publish. Psychologically, this comes from a need to be heard, but writing, creative writing, is listening. Creative writing uh, is not having something to say, it's listening and hearing what's being said and then putting that on the page. Whether it's socially or uh, in, whether you're listening to a, a social consciousness or whether you're listening to the story that's, that's, all, that's already being told, if you're listening, you're, you're, you're writing better than if you are coming to the page and putting words on the page that need to, that you think need to be said. You all know that state when you give up and then things just come. So uh, psychologically, but writing is, is, is uh, listening. Milan Kundera argues that, gra that graphomania, the drive to uh, publish, not the drive to write, Two different things uh, comes about takes takes on 
epidemic proportions when a high degree of well-being infests a population and allows people to devote their energy to useless, he says, useless activities. An advanced state of social atomization exists, resulting in, in the feeling of individual isolation and the radical absence of significant social change in a nation. You could argue that we are ripe for graphomania. Uh, has anyone ever read a blog? <laughs> you know what blogs are? Uh, how many blogs do you think are out there? A tremendous amount of ability for us to publish now. What happened to the process of writing? We can publish anything now. So now, as writers, since we can publish anything, we have to figure out what it is we really want to say. It's not now, oh, I can publish everything. Now, it is, there is a social responsibility to figure out what should be published, what you want to really say. The, 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 the social responsibility on artists is huge right now, I think. Uh, according to Kundera, mass graphomania threatens the very meaning of the written word because the resulting flood of words drowns out the chance for anyone to be heard. The self-esteem of a country made up of a leisure class results in egos that drown one another. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So this calls for an aesthetic conscience among, among writers. How to decide, how to really put our, 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 uh, our best into our work. It, you know, you could argue that we're getting sloppier, but you could also argue that it really calls for us to be less sloppy. But in order to do that, we have to get rid of the notion of publishing. We have to find a way to stay in process. Even the most overlooked blog on the internet has hundreds of readers. Books often have fewer readers. Publishing can't mean that much anymore. It can't mean that much anymore. So this, this catch-22 that's happening, or this paradox that's happening, is that as we are able to publish more, we're actually asking ourselves uh, to... Uh, we're really asking ourselves as artists to publish less, to really listen, and to really be in the present moment as we're writing. Is writing ever a useless activity? Writing engages the right and left brain activities and encourages integration and wholeness of mind. If you're looking for a reason to write, and it's an extrinsic reason, if you're looking for your writing to matter because something outside is going to validate it. Uh, you're not only uh, sort of, well, the, I won't even say that. The main thing you're doing is you're killing your own creative process. To value it just for this is fantastic. Uh, writing engages the limbic system in a healthy and measured way. That's the emotional system of the body. And uh, writing clarifies what cannot be said in speech, more emotional and intellectual clarity in a society with all the conditions for graphomania can only be good. What do I have next? Writing is a practice. Many of us have, have a practice in our daily lives. 
guitar, skateboarding, cooking, prayer, meditation, working out. We don't jump to the end of those. Pra a practice in your life enriches your life. Any practice enriches a person's life. Sometimes a practice becomes a profession. But here's the thing, folks. We have to face it. This is extremely rare. It's extremely rare. Entering a practice with the goal of a profession almost always renders discouraging results, thus deleting the pleasure of practice and the possibility of making the practice a profession. So what I'm going to do now, I've, I've talked a little bit, and I have some more slides also, but what I'm going to do now is one thing that, that you, that I want to encourage you to do, this is going to sound paradoxically, paradoxical, is to write bad, write poorly, write messy. Um, because if we're jumping to the end, we... Um, we, we, we get so hung up about what we're putting on the page that we never get to the process of writing. You know, we never get to the process of writing. So um, I'm going to have you all write something here and put it on the line and make it bad. It's okay. Now, I'm not saying to publish this thing. It's okay. But the process, the process always uh, renders some crap. And the crap has to be okay. That's part of the process. So I'm going to let Billy Collins talk to you a little bit about bad writing. And um, by the way, I'm not making any judgments about Billy Collins. He gets, he gets a lot of bad press because he got a lot of good press. And um, it, it's a weird thing that we do as writers. If somebody gets a lot of good press, suddenly they get a lot of bad press. It's, we undercut each other all the time. So I'm not making any judgment on him at all, even though when I play his video, it is going to say write bad at the top. I'm going to play this, and then afterwards I'm going to have you do the same thing that, that Mr. Collins did. So here is Billy Collins' poem. Fora TV, the world is thinking. Here's a poem that um, I like to read, which is kind of another, it just connects with that one because it's uh, also stealing something from another poet. And a lot of this stuff goes on rather covertly that I'm not going to tell you about, but some of it, there are different kinds of uh, thefts, and some of them are daylight, you know, daylight um, crimes, just you know, knocking over a jewelry store at noon, but another stuff is like a second story, guys. But this is very open. I, I take the two lines, first two lines of someone else's poem and rewrite it for them, which is, uh, this is, this is done out of courtesy. Uh, <laughs> When you see a poem that doesn't seem to get, you know, that seems to fail, you can just rewrite it and, and, and improve upon it that way. So, so this is, a, uh, I came across this love poem in a magazine, and uh, it's a series of uh, comparisons in which uh, the poet uh, relies on a very uh, ancient um, device in, in, in Western love poetry. Uh, at least dating back to the Middle Ages, which is to compare the beloved to various things in the world, and therefore, by flattering her, so your eyes are like stars and whatnot, you um, you make headway. And um, 
The, um, so he, uh, his poem really is a wheel-spinning exercise in these kinds of comparisons, about 40 lines of just the same stuff. You're like, you know, this, you or this and that. So he begins by saying to the uh, beloved, um, he says, you are the bread and the knife, the crystal goblet and the wine. Litany. You are the bread and the knife, the crystal goblet and the wine. You are the dew on the morning grass and the burning wheel of the sun. You are the white apron of the baker and the marsh birds suddenly in flight. However, you are not the wind in the orchard, the plums on the counter, or the house of cards. And you are certainly not the pine-scented air. There is no way you are the pine-scented air. <laughs> it is possible that you are the fish under the bridge, maybe even the pigeon on the general's head, but you are not even close to being the field of cornflowers at dusk. And a quick look in the mirror will show that you are neither the boots in the corner nor the boat asleep in its boathouse. It might interest you to know, speaking of the plentiful imagery of the world, that I am the sound of rain on the roof. <laughs> I also happen to be the shooting star, the evening paper blowing down an alley, and the basket of chestnuts on the kitchen table. I am also the moon in the trees and the blind woman's teacup. But don't worry, I am not the bread and the knife. You are still the bread and the knife. You will always be the bread and the knife. Not to mention the crystal goblet and somehow the wine. Okay, here's what we're gonna do. I have some swag up here. I have vintage, vintage bags from the Iowa Summer Writers Festival. I have vintage t-shirts no longer available. Except right here. Black, orange, red, every color that you can imagine. Well, you have limited <laughs> um, these could be yours if you write something really schlucky. But isn't that extrinsic motivation? <laughs> yeah, you got it, you got it, which is why we're going to write schlucky. <laughs> and I have some things to get you started with your schlucky writing. So you can, you can, do, uh, you can do what Billy did. Uh, here's first lines. You can pick one of these first lines and see what you can do with it. See if you have the, the courage, the guts to put something on the page that really kind of doesn't matter. And then when you are ready, when you've written your three, four, five lines, whatever it is, I'm turning this over to you. You're going to come up here and you're going to read it in front of everybody because that's what it takes. That's not publishing. That's something different. That's sharing. Uh, you're gonna, gonna come up here and read it, and if you read it, you get one of those. I'll shut up now. Take a little bit of time. 
when you're done, just come and stand in front of the aisle here, at the front of the aisle, and then we'll, we'll take the first couple of people, or the first, I think, 15 people. We probably won't have time for that. We got some people reading. We got some fast people here. That's good. All right, you can. Uh... Oh, excellent! I love you guys. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start the uh, I'm gonna start the festivities here. Gonna let let the readings begin. And when you get done, just grab what you want there. So I can use both hands here. Tell us your name so that we know who it is that's writing poorly this morning. You, you need both names or just the first name? Just the first name is fine. Okay. Hi, I'm Ken and I'm a bad writer. <laughs> Once upon a time, during present day adolescence, spanning the dusty divide of desire, I fantasized about how to unfurl my desire, take a breath, and rise from the deepest depths of the sea to spin like the motion of car wheels in mud season. Yeah, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty loud, so I, I'll just go with this. I'm Judy. Today I'm a bad writer. Hi, Hi. Hi. All right. In a while, I might sleep or talk to you, or take a breath, or I might not, because I just ate a burrito, and my belly is grumbling, and I may have to poop. So I'll just text you from the toilet, okay?
I didn't use any of these lines. My name is Linda. Hi, Hi Linda. Good morning, group. Thank you for your support. <laughs> Yesterday was only a minute, though last year was 10 years. Tomorrow stretches endlessly, although I have an appointment on Thursday. <laughs> so disruptive appointments. I should have skipped them in the past. <laughs> I also speak very loudly, so I'll just read. Can I rise from the depths of my writing depression? I'll go to the Iowa Writing Workshop. I came to the Iowa Writing Workshop to learn what I've been doing my entire life to write badly. Writing badly? <laughs> had I known, I would have already had 300 unpublished manuscripts. <laughs> writing badly? I do that well. <laughs> The name of this poem is. What's your name? What's your name? Oh, Nan. Hi, Nan. Hi, Nan. Hi, thank you for your support. The name of this penetrating poem is Feathered Angst. My desire, my dank, dark, diddly, dumpy, and wet desire. Yes, I said wet. But also warm, wise, and winsome. Winsome, winsome winsomely wonderful, is unfurled in the depths as you stand next to the KitchenAid mixer in your boxer swing freeze. Hi, I'm Don, and... Uh, Hi, folks. How can I unfurl my desire? Can I rise from the steepest depths of the sea to protect you? A winged beast that comes out of the swamp, dripping with bat dung and seaweed, circles you till your neck breaks, and kicks it till your head falls off, then take it back to my swamp. To the alligators and water rats. <laughs> Mike or no? Um. Hey, I'm Jacinta. All that I am is more than a car without wheels. I dive into the backseat of your desire. More than a roll on the road, the white walls spinning in your head, your dead head, with vapid engine running. <laughs> okay, we've got to keep them moving here. Hi, my name is Penny. My poem is All That I Am. All that I am is more than the collision of my parents in the back seat of a car on a sultry South Carolina night. All that I am is more than the sum of all the unbalanced bosses and all the jobs I've used to push the boulder of my existence up the hill of life. <laughs> all that I am 
is more than the collection of pre sharp t-shirts on the floor in the back of the closet this morning. Hi, I'm Celeste. In a while, I might sleep, or talk to you, or take a breath, or not. But wait, if I don't breathe, then I'll be dead. That's not what I want. Sleep might be better, but then I might dream. Maybe I'll dream about you, or not. Maybe I'll talk to you instead, but that might be boring and put me to sleep or bore me to death, or not. <laughs> sleep or talk to you or take a breath or take a walk on the moon right with moldy cheese smelling to the highest reaches of the Milky Way. My dog would be there already wanting a big chunky bite. Watch him glow. <laughs> Call me Jane. How can I unfurl my desire when I can't even unfurl my sheets? <laughs> the dogs, the cats, the man, the boy, alas. Hem me in like an Indian child, a papoose, if you will. They don't mean to be cruel. They know not of the ache in my bladder. <laughs> Overwhelming, pulsating, agonizing desire to pee. <laughs> I'm not sure if I need tell me if I need the microphone. My name's Martha Ann. She need the mic? No. Okay. How can I unfurl my desire for a free t-shirt? Am I that cheap? <laughs> I am. Will it match my shoes? Will I choose the right size? What is my size? Actually I look terrible in t-shirts. At my age? What am I thinking? I better take the bag. <laughs> My name is Sally. Can you hear me? No. 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 I guess no. Yes. Yes. Um, I might sleep or talk to you. Then again, probably not. I might talk to you in my sleep. And you, no doubt, would grasp what I'm saying. You understand the motion of car wheels and the winged beast that flies from the microwave and flexes its muscles, <laughs> carrying off the overcooked pork chops of the day. Never mind. Reality is only a dream. <laughs> My name is Mary Claire. Hi, <clears throat> there. I happen to be a sleep apnea person, so. Uh, in a while, I might sleep or talk to you or take a breath. But then again, my monster machine forces me to breathe in, breathe out. Hey, cat. Restless, too? Off with my mask. On with it, is the cat. The cat now breathes well, but I pass into the netherworld where I talk to you. Feed the cat, clean the poop. <laughs> yes or no? no? I don't think so. Hi, my name's Sherry. I don't think this writing is bad enough, frankly. I'm sure <laughs> I, I almost ran over here to sit down. Um, in the not too distant future, I might bite my tongue, 
and tuck my head onto a pillow rather than spilling my guts or breathing deeply as everyone is always asking me to do. Come on up. Hi, I'm Patrick. John Keats at Hampton Beach. How can I unfurl my desire for you? I can barely open a freaking beach umbrella on a windless day <laughs> to protect you and the baby from the sun. How can I rise from the depths of the sea? I am scared to death of the depths of the sea. I am scared of the shallow water at low tide on Hampton Beach, smelling of dead clams and the seaweed green. <laughs> I'm Jim. Hi, Jim. Hi, Jim. In a while, I might sleep or talk to you or take a breath. Or I might whine and moan and talk about my grandmother's death. <laughs> I could laugh or dream or write a sonnet. But most likely, I will cry or fall or maybe even vomit. <laughs> No, no, no. Let's try. Hi, I'm Mark. I'm Mark. We are all addicts, aren't we? Right? <laughs> In a while, I might sleep or talk to you, if you'll let me, if you'll open an ear in my general direction of need, because the world, it seems, is awful busy. Or busy, but not really awful. <laughs> Ever, really. The world just is. Is listening, too, I think. Or maybe I'll take a breath instead, before speaking. <laughs> Hello, I'm Janet. I think some of these people don't qualify. Their writing is too good. I agree. I'm going to say, yeah. All that I am is more than the motion of car wheels across the dusty, something of desire. Is more than the honk of a foghorn through the thickening mists of pain. Is more than the smell of gasoline in the forecourts of my hope. Is more than anything I have time for now because I just want the t shirt. <laughs> yes, one more t shirt, two more people. Come on up. I have a t-shirt for you in the wings. <laughs> Hi, my name is Rosalind. Hi. In a while, I might work my way to the door and then watch for the rain. Yes, waiting and watching is my joy and pain. Last night, I waited all hours in vain. Or was it the night before? Oh, nothing hurts more than this. <laughs> and My name is Suzette. This feels good. <laughs> In a while, I might sleep, but first I have to earn the right for some shut-eye. Long days, cow-filled ranges whose manure I have to spread across the strawberry plants. Oh, the sweet smell of berry cow pies. Oh, the sweet taste of luscious laureates spewing their manure with me at this 11th hour. <laughs> Everybody, a hand. You guys are great. Fantastic. So I heard some pretty good.
writing uh, in there. So you know what happens when you, uh, when you give up? Some good writing just spills out of you even though you're trying to do some bad stuff. It's a catch-22. Um, this is by T.S. Eliot, and I think, you know, I, I, when I read this line, usually from Ash Wednesday, it has sort of a, a it feels very contemplative to me. Uh, teach me to care and not to care. Teach me to sit still. And I think that's what we have to do as writers, um, to care and not to care, to think about the end and not to think about the end. And for God's sakes, to sit still in a chair for you know four hours at a time, you know that that's the that's the hard part. Um, but uh, to care and to not to care, that place in between there is the place of process. I'm going to play one more video and have one more slide, and then if there's time for questions, I'll take that. Uh, okay. The next video is. What happens to us when we really get in that mode? Words blur, our book comes to life, the story comes to life. And I think that this sort of shows the process of writing. sticker and made it into my own 
no process, no publishing, no process, no publishing. <laughs> so thank you very much. That's the end of my talk. Uh, 
you know, we have, we're in workshops and we're constantly uh, putting stuff out there for people to read and getting feedback, often on very early first drafts. And is that in some way helpful or is it detrimental to the process? Did I say it correctly? Yes, thank you. Uh, and so I, I think, again, I'm just going to repeat what I said before. It's, you have to be very careful with when, it, it, when something is ready to go out there. And because we know that in our brains we are apt to, to put stuff out there in writing before it's ready, I think pulling back just a little bit is probably a little bit healthy. You, know? um, you have to know, and only you can know when that time is to put it out there. But that first urge to put it out there, I don't trust it in me. Maybe you do, but I don't trust it in myself. I sit on it a long time after that first urge. Because sometimes you can put it out there and it, and it's, it gets killed. Or it becomes watered down and mediocre. It's a long time for you, a few days or a few years. <laughs> That's on peace. It depends on the peace. I just picked up something that I started uh, two years ago, and I just finished it. And uh, other things, it'll be uh, other things, the first draft never changes. You just have to listen. Yes, over here. You mentioned some words about the higher critical function called autonomy. Can you just define what autonomy is? It's when you use one sense other teachers here can help me out. When you use one sense to describe another sense, is that? Could you repeat the question? Uh, he wanted to know what the word metonymy meant. Uh, it's when you use. Who has? Who was the teacher here who has a great example of metonymy for me? All hands on Oh, oh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, metonymy is the sense one. It's okay. all versions of metaphor. I thought metonymy, I, let's go, let's go look at metonymy. Does anybody have an iPhone? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought that metonymy is when you use one sense to, you, to explain another sense. It tastes like sunshine. Exactly, something like that. Yeah. It's a figure of speech that consists of the use of the name of one object or concept for that of another to which it is related, or of which it is a part, as scepter for sovereignty, or the bottle for strong drink, or count heads or noses for count people. Kyle's got it right on. Thank you, Kyle. Hey, Kyle. I knew that I loved you, and now it's, it's just true. I, mean, I just said it out loud. I needed you right now, and you were here for me. Thank you. He also showed me up here, so they'll be busy hustling. <laughs> yes? Would you talk about how to gain satisfaction in the process when your mind's been totally geared to end result? Like, how do you learn to enjoy the process? Hmm. Good question. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps uh, Doug can answer for us. <laughs> I'm calling on all the other teachers. You know, you're going to have to, everyone has to find their own way to do that. Some people will, will find it through, uh, for, you know what, for me, I took up, I took up things that had nothing to do with writing, that, and I am constantly in process on something else that has nothing to do with writing. So right now I'm learning the guitar. 
I'm, I'm constantly in the process of learning something to stay a beginner at something so that I remember that the process is what I love. Um, you'll find your own way. It could be meditation uh, that, that keeps you more present in the moment. It could be anything, but uh, for me, I'm, and, you know, it, it makes me quite a, a dilettante too. I do a lot of photography and playing music and stuff. I'm constantly learning something, so just staying in the process. But you'll find your own way. Yeah, there isn't one answer to that. Mark has a question. Oh, I'm sorry. You know what, Mark? I'm sorry. The person in front of you has had her hand up. I, you mentioned a linguist before, and I didn't mention Stephen Pinker. Uh, I can't remember the name of his book in the same way that I couldn't remember the definition of a word that I put on the board. Um, <laughs> because when I get up here, I get extremely nervous. And um, so, what is the name of his book? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the language instinct. I paid him to sit there. Thank you. Yes. Mark? Um, I, I just want to maybe follow up on that last question. Yeah. I think maybe the way to do it is to, uh, to find out that publishing isn't any more enjoyable. Or that once you do publish, That's a fantastic point. Thank you for that, Mark. Thank you. Uh, time for two more questions. I saw two hands. Uh... Um, sort of using the analogy of if you try too hard to be funny, you're really not yeah. funny. If you, in the practice, if you try too hard to be deep and interesting, yeah. you're not. How, how can you enjoy, um, how, how can you lose that self Yeah, if I had the answers to those questions, I would definitely be, you know, making a lot of money. Uh, how, how can you, how can you lose the self-consciousness? You know, you just, does anyone have an answer to that? You, you, you whittle away at, for, for me, I, I just whittle away at my self-esteem constantly. And then I, I figure, you know, I know that I'm, you know, I know that I'm bad. And then I, and then I sit down and something good comes out. But I really do, I really do will away constantly at, at that. I mean, I, I told you I was a martial artist before. Uh, the very first time I fought, I was a kid, and I was gonna, I was, and I was and still am a girl, and I was fighting guys who were 18. I was 10. And so I, I thought, oh, I've already lost. I might as well go out there and give it my best, and I won. The first time I fought somebody, I was 10 years old, he was an 18-year-old guy, and I won the sparring match. And that taught me a lot about writing. It's like, you know what, you give up first, and then you move on, then you move on. You give up, you just say. One more question, uh, and then, I'm sorry, we have, to, we have to go. This is a fantastic group, and I'm really enjoying your questions. Well, they, they, I wanted to make sure that everyone heard what Mark said. Um, I'm not sure that you heard over here what Mark said, that when you publish, one, one way to stay in process is to realize that when you publish, it's no big deal. I, that, that's not snooty, you know, I'm, I'm published and so I can say that. I think everyone who has experienced some sort of success like that, what, what we call success, which I, I don't see as, as, it's a form of success, but it's not the be all and end all. 
and there are other successes. There are far more successful writers who I have seen who have published anything. Um, not far more, but there are a number of successful writers that I've seen who haven't published anything yet, too. So um, once you do it, it, it's not the end. It's not the end. You have a question. Well, I do. I do meditate. You know, I have uh, all, all my life, and um, so for me, that's that's what works. Um, and I again, I think that you'll you'll find your own way. But it's hard to get rid of that critic. And um, for me, meditation really works. And for me, getting the sparring ring and getting getting whacked works. You know, so like, oh, that hurts. And um, and and you don't feel as constantly. You feel constantly mortal. Like we, we all have to know we're constantly mortal. You know, this this quiet husk around us is is not going to be so quiet one day. It's going to take over. Uh, one last question. Okay. Uh, I doubt there are many children's writers. Well, I'm one of them, and the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators in Michigan, they push for the fact that you write because you love it and you enjoy it. What happens after it is nice, but you do it because you love doing it. Yes. And I think it's a gift that it comes that way. Good. Thank you. And thank you all so much for your time.